This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to trek fm's dedicated books and comics show i am your host matthew rushing and with me as he is always now is dan gunther of Treklet reviews dan how is it going hi matthew not too bad excited to be here again as always Dan, what is what is that that you're you're like hoarding behind you? It looks like it's covered, and and are you going to have an unveiling tonight? Or, <laughs> um, actually, in my friend's room at the moment, recording. So, I'm not sure what's back there. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I just thought maybe uh, you were hiding some orbs back there, ah. uh, a lot like we're going to talk about in in the latest Mission Gamma book. So I wasn't sure what was going on, but that makes sense. You're you're just in a friend's room. You have no idea what's going on in there. No, um, <laughs> very gracious of him to allow me to uh, yeah use uh, his room. By the way, <laughs> yeah, a great recording space. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sound fantastic. Oh well, thank you. So do you. <laughs> We don't have a ton of news, but we did have some things to talk about comic-wise. And the first thing that that Dan and I wanted to be able to talk about was the Star Trek Planet of the Apes 1 crossover event that they have going on. And uh, this has just come out in the last few weeks, so if you haven't gotten a chance to uh, read it, we are going to talk about it a little bit. It might be a tiny bit spoilery, so just be careful with that. But uh, So, Dan... We've talked a little bit about the idea of, of crossovers in general, and we've got Star Trek and Planet of the Apes, and we've got issue one now. What are your general impressions now that you've actually read through the first issue? Well, Matthew, speaking as someone who um, doesn't know a lot about the whole Planet of the Apes franchise, um, I'm going to kind of let you in on a secret, and this may really hurt my credibility here i've seen exactly one planet of the apes movie and i'm very sad to say it was the uh i think 2000 planet oh, of the apes you know oh, the one with uh mark marky mark yeah Wahlberg. that one yeah, uh, <laughs> that'll do it to you um that'll make you never want to see an apes film again yeah and uh, the thing is i'm really interested in seeing all of the planet of the apes movies at some point uh, I just haven't gotten around to it, and it's really sad that my introduction was was that movie. So and now this comic. So yeah, did the comic help soothe that? Was it like a bomb for your your you know your sore, or <laughs> did it just kind of rip that wound right open? Well, Matthew, I this comic was interesting. It wasn't bad. 
However, I felt like, you know, it was a lot of setup without a lot of, uh, you know, showing us what's going on and that kind of thing, which I guess, you know, the first issue of a new series is supposed to do. However, it was kind of a lot of waiting around for something to happen and then nothing really happening. Well, and did you feel a little bit too like you've just kind of seen this story before? Very They've much so. They've just added so. apes this time? Mm-hmm. Yes, this is very, very reminiscent of a classic Star Trek episode, uh, as I noticed that you've pointed out as well. Yeah, you know, reading through it, I was like, wait, isn't this just a private little war? Exactly. But with apes and other dimensional space that we've traveled to, so... Uh, you know, we, we've traveled basically to the multiverse in DC Comics almost, where, you know, all of the different versions of your character can exist. Your Silver Age, your, you know, your uh, Golden Age, you know, all of this stuff can all exist simultaneously in the multiverse. I feel like we've reached the genre multiverse now, and... Um, <laughs> which is apparently called Other Dimensional Space. Mm -hmm. Very original title. (laughs) Um, Which has has led us to the Planet of the Apes universe. And I don't know. You know, I can understand the crossover with Doctor Who because it, it kind of makes more sense. I mean, the TARDIS can go anywhere in time and space, and we've seen it jump dimensions. Mm -hmm. So that makes complete sense to me when you mirror that with what we've seen in the next generation with parallels and all those kind of things so all that made sense but to kind of put these two together I think it's just not my cup of tea especially so far at least with it just being or just feeling like well we've already done this before it is a private little war and and maybe and hopefully you know, as we talk further on in the series, they'll change the story so it's not so familiar and do something different with it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my hope as well. Uh, like you said, it it's very reminiscent of that early episode. And I would love to see them take it in a different direction at some point. Um, based on what I've seen so far, I'm not holding out a ton of hope for that. But you never know, they may surprise us. Well, and what's really interesting about it so far as well, you know, the apes that we see, they're not really a danger to the Federation for sure. I mean, they don't have any kind of technology that would would um, be advanced enough to, to be a threat mm-hmm. to the, you know, the 23rd century galaxy of Star Trek. And so I'm not really sure, again, how this is all going to play out. And I guess I would just call this kind of blasé. Mm-hmm. And and um, because I don't really like the word meh, and, right? <laughs> uh, but that's just kind of how I was left feeling. Now I know, you know what? Um, even though I don't care for for the Apes franchise in a way that makes me want to see it cross over with Star Trek, I know there are plenty of fans that do, and it's a fun diversion. So if you're interested, I think it's worth maybe checking out. It's just I don't think it's for me mm-hmm. specifically, especially when. I, I read a lot of comics, and I'm I'm looking for something with just a little bit more originality, uh, right. even with my you know Star Trek comics. So, mm-hmm. all of that said, uh, like you said, the apes 
don't seem to pose a big threat to the Federation and that sort of thing. But some of the cover art and that sort of thing we've seen shows, you know, an ape captaining the Enterprise and that kind of thing. So maybe there's some surprises in store that'll make this series a lot more interesting than we think. Well, and that's definitely the hope. So I guess what we can collectively do, at least you and I, is we'll cross our fingers and (laughs) hop on one foot three times. And hopefully that will make this better. So um, (laughs) the next thing that we have, the new Visions comic made out of mud has been released. It came out in December. Chris and I were not able to talk about it. And uh, we're going to talk about it um, next week together. But I just kind of wanted to ask you, looking at at the way that John Byrne has been doing this for a a little bit now, what's kind of your opinion on just the new Visions comics and and the storylines and then, of course, the aesthetic of it as well? Mm -hmm. Well, when the project was first announced, like a lot of people, I was a little bit skeptical, kind of wondering, well, is it just kind of a cut-and-paste job? You know, what is it really? Um, As the series progressed... I found that they were very creative and I really like the artwork and the original parts that he's creating as well as combining old scenes with new backgrounds and that kind of thing, really kind of making it look like an episode of Star Trek. The storylines, I remember very much agreeing with uh, you guys about an earlier storyline, for example, that was basically the children of time from Deep Space Nine kind of rehashed, uh, which, you know, interestingly enough, had already been rehashed on Enterprise. (laughs) (laughs) This is true with E-squared. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So this is something, this is a story we're getting many, many times, and it gets a little tiresome. Um, However, you know, some of the stories he has done have been really interesting. And like I said, I like the looks. I like the aesthetic for the most part. Sometimes it looks a little bit rough, but usually it looks pretty good and, you know, just like it came out of a TV set in the 60s kind of thing. So I'm kind of, I have mixed feelings. As I've been reading it further, you know, again, I tend to really enjoy when the story is done really well. The things that still really pull me out are the fact that, you know, if this was just a a regular comic that John Byrne was writing... I think I'd enjoy it even more mm-hmm. because I feel like the the way that the comic is done with the, the photo art takes away from it for me. Uh, it almost reminds me of, uh, for those of you that might know, um, the flannel board that you would get in Sunday school kind of look where they were these the, they're these cut out flannel characters that you would put up on a board. Um, or it kind of reminds me of those, um, those sticky books where you could reuse Mm, the stickers and scenes. It feels like those two things kind of put together. Whereas, you know, if it was just a comic, I mean, John Byrne did the Romulan series comics, which I hold in very high regard. I mean, fan freaking tastic. Very, very good. Uh, Exactly. So I I think that the writing that he usually does is fantastic. I think he's really limited by what he's doing, and it's sometimes kind of hurting it. And, mm-hmm. and the aesthetic pulls me out more than it, and it puts me in the story, and that's kind of frustrating. But on a whole, I, I found the stories to be mostly enjoyable and feel very much like we're in a, a fourth season mm-hmm. of you know TOS, and that's what I like. Yeah. Um, so hopefully the, the stories will continue to be strong and 
the artwork will continue to grow, especially as I, I'm pretty sure that John is learning better and newer and faster ways of doing things as he's, at this point, he's really starting to create tons of new sets mm-hmm. um, that, that they're using. So yeah, I, I think it's usually the new sets and the new characters that he creates. They're the ones that I'm like, ooh. Yeah, it looks so, a little bit too CGI or a little bit too... Uh, it just looks Cartoon-y like a maybe? Photoshop. Yeah. yeah it, it really does. It it looks a little bit too much like something that you put together in Photoshop. But, you know, uh, on a whole, I, I think it's it's been an enjoyable thing. So if you're interested in those, I, they're worth checking out, especially as, as Dan and I, and then, of course, Chris and I have talked about, the stories, for the most part, have actually been very strong. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's added to the TOS canon in a really good way. But Dan, before we hit our feature where we're going to talk about Mission Gamma Cathedral, we're going to be continuing that series. We want to tell everybody about Audible, who is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from. And of course, they have new titles coming in each week as new books are released from classics to bestsellers. And of course, even some of the most famous Star Trek books, Um, you know, you've got Prime Directive and Spock's World Federation. There's so many out there. You could get the Shatnerverse novels. Audible really has something for everybody. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is and give you a chance to catch up on all of those books that you've just never had time for because we're so busy these days. And this way you can take your books on the go. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm to sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash Trek FM, and we thank Audible for their support of Literary Treks and Trek FM. Well, Dan, I'm really excited that we are going to be jumping back into the Mission Gamma series, and this one, Cathedral, you know, after that gray spirit, I was a little disheartened because I was like, oh man, are these just not as good as I remembered? Mm-hmm. Um but I think that this book has done a ton to renew my faith in just how great this Mission Gamma series is. And uh, for for you, I know that you have read it, and uh, you've probably read it a couple of times now. Mm-hmm. Where does it, you know, the the Cathedral book rank? Kind of when you think of the Mission Gamma series as a whole. Well, Matthew, it's definitely up there. Um, I really enjoyed Twilight. Uh, Before somebody misquotes me on that, the Star Trek novel Twilight. (laughs) Um, I really thought that was an excellent novel. Uh, And like you, uh, This Grey Spirit was a bit of a disappointment, kind of a bit of a stumble in the series. And, you know, a four-book series that's, you know, pretty uh, page-heavy and small text... It's kind of hard to get into, but Cathedral comes along right at, right at book three to kind of pull you back in and really get you excited for this story. So yeah, uh, Cathedral is definitely up there for me, one of the highlights of this series for sure. It's a, it's a lot like The Godfather 3. Every time I think I'm out, they keep pulling me back in. Exactly. <laughs> well, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading this is just kind of the pace of this this series in general. I mean... I, I think that when you read it, you might think that things are being drawn out a lot. I mean, for, throughout the whole series, you know, Bajor is is going to be joining the Federation, and over the four books, this is supposed to be happening. 
Mm-hmm. Plus the Cardassian Bajoran talks and trying to repair their la- relationship before they joined the Federation. How do you kind of feel about that? Do you feel like the pace of this series feels slow, especially now that we have you know all the books in a row, and and even beforehand? I mean, you know, you would get one book, and then you know the next month, the next one would come out, and mm-hmm. or do you feel like it? It makes sense. Well, when I first read the series many, many years ago, um, I definitely had that feeling. It was, and again, like you said, it's one book coming out and then you have to wait another month for the next book to come out. And it, you know, takes a few months to get this story out. And I remember thinking this four book series, you know, all about exploring the Gamma Quadrant. I don't know if I can hang on for that amount of time. Reading, rereading it this time though, kind of had a different perspective. And I don't know if it's because I'm older and can get into more of the nuances of the story than I could when I was younger, or if it's because I'm reading them kind of bang, 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 one right after the other. Um, I'm definitely appreciating the length of the story a little bit more. There are momentous big things happening and very weighty things, such as. Bajor preparing to enter the Federation, which technically was what Deep Space Nine was all about. So these events kind of given their importance, it's good to kind of get that. They get the time they need to tell the story fully and completely. It is funny to think, you know, now we can basically binge read the books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, beforehand and even now, I mean, think... All, we're waiting on on the edge of our seats for Kirsten Byers' next book, right? You know, for the Voyager <laughs> series and with the Enterprise series, and so all of these things as we wait for them to continue, or when the Typhon Pact was coming out and all that stuff, you just kept waiting for the next book. You know, now when you go back and reread, and you can just kind of hit them real quick, um, the story does take on it. Uh, I think a more nuanced uh, view because you can actually really remember what happened last book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if you're reading them all together and that's really, really nice. And I, I really encourage you, you know, if you, if you're a reader and you're just getting back into things uh, with, with Star Trek and, and um, you know, reading the books one after the other will really give you that sense of storyline and continuity that's harder to get if you've been doing it, I think, like Dan and I, over the last, what, 15 years or so <laughs> that some of these books and series have been going on, and it's 15 to 20 years at this point. So, Oh, you're making me feel old. <laughs> I know. I, I'm, I'm like, oh, goodness. The other thing, though, that I was thinking to myself was, how, how does, in the real world, anything political happen? It usually doesn't just happen overnight. And the things that are happening here are really big in this story. So it made sense to me to have a four-book series to talk about, okay, Bajor is going to be trying to enter the Federation. That's a huge deal. Mm. At the same time, Bajor is also going to be talking to Cardassia about trying to repair that relationship when in reality, you know, it's only been, what, eight years now since the occupation ended? Right. And the difficulty of trying to do that. And then, of course, all the other plot machinations that are going on behind the scenes that we find out about in this series in general. Mm -hmm. And so, to me, the pace of the series feels honestly just about right, especially as you get to read all the books 
in a succession now much quicker than you did beforehand. And I think it flows together really well instead of feels like, oh my God, when are they ever going to get there? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I don't know, but them exploring the Gamma Quadrant along with the Titan series feels like some of the very few books in Star Trek in the last 15 years where there's just exploring happening. Mm-hmm. Everything else in so many ways has been an exploration of the political landscape of the 24th century, especially after Nemesis and then Destiny and then the Typhon Pact. I mean, mm-hmm. think about all that stuff. I mean, so them going boldly and seeking out these new lives and new civilizations in the in the Gamma Quadrant is actually really interesting to me. Because I kind of miss that a little bit sometimes. <laughs> um, the authors getting to kind of stretch their imaginations and, and especially here create this really unique place to visit this cathedral or anathema, depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a very interesting perspective, and and that's a kind of theme that we've seen being played out, uh, especially right now in the novels too. Is that whole idea of exploration versus politics and warfare and that sort of thing. And that seems to be kind of a lot of what Star Trek's been about over the last uh, few years. I remember when this first came out, part of the reason I thought that it dragged on um, was because I kept wanting them to get back to the station and what was happening on the station and what was going on with that. And in the planet of the week, type thing of Mission Gamma kind of graded on me because I wanted, you know, my Deep Space Nine. I wanted to find out what was going to happen to Bajor and the First Minister and what was going on. Again, though, as as I've grown older and, and can appreciate that side of the story more, more so in this novel than the other novels, I really liked the Gamma Quadrant happenings. That... My my feelings still kind of hold true for the other novels. I was kind of waiting for the Gamma Quadrant stuff to be over with so we could get back to Deep Space Nine. <laughs> I think that Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles really do a fantastic job of creating a situation in the Gamma Quadrant that does what Deep Space Nine does best, mm-hmm. which is allow this exploration to actually be an exploration of the characters as much as it is this new race in this new place. Mm -hmm. And they also really create a fantastic place for them to be having this happen and a lot of mystery around it. And all of this brings together the fascinating meta questions that we also got from Star Trek in general, but also Deep Space Nine, the very Deep Space Nine-y type <laughs> questions, if you might. For sure. Um, and one of the things that I really liked is that it led to that question of what we saw with Captain Kirk of how we need our pain, mm-hmm. like that there's a validity to pain. There's a validity to bad things happening to us, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because the the big question is always why do you know why do bad things happen to good people or why do bad things happen at all why is there evil in the world and what was so interesting in the book was to watch nog kind of learn that there was serious good that came from the hardest part of his life losing his leg mm-hmm. um and that you know, he might not have become the man that he is now without that adversity, without that pain, 
right. you know, to teach him. And I think that that's just a really fantastic way of of being able to answer that question that these things have a way of showing us, one, what is best and, and, and how we know what is best because we also know what is the worst. Mm-hmm. Also, how they shape and mold and kind of guide us and make us who we are if we're willing to put the time in to learn the lessons from them. Mm-hmm. It's very much the lesson that Captain Picard learned, of course, in the episode Tapestry, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He didn't, you know, um, getting in a fight in his youth, he uh, basically was stabbed through the heart. And without that, without that experience, he never became the man that would become captain of the Enterprise in the future. And yeah, Nog learns much the same thing. Um, Without the bad, the good might never come out, or you might never recognize the good without the bad to kind of juxtapose it, right? Kind of like that old saying, like, um, you can't recognize the light without the darkness. I don't know if I'm getting that exactly right, but something along those lines, right? If you can't, if you don't have the worst, you can never recognize what the best is. Well, and then too, I mean, you could never be thankful for it. Exactly you know, right. Uh, when it comes around, and and so there's something about that that creates very much the experience of what it means to be a human and what it means to be alive. And and what's interesting is to see that really play out in the story as well because experience plays a huge part in the in the next part of the book which is i mean this entire book is about faith and and what we put our faith in i mean i can't even count if i did all the times that the word faith is actually used in this book it's incredible and in the way that they're kind of talking about that faith is a part of our everyday lives you know and Faith comes from reason and experience put together, not just from blindly putting your faith in something, but that that the faith that we have in people, the faith that we have in a higher being, the faith that we have in any of those things really comes from our experiences and uh, and the reason that we have. And we put all that together and we find a way to, to put our faith into something um, because, you know, like, Early in the book, Bashir, he talks about how he wished he believed in miracles. And then this whole big swing of him by the end of his experience through Cathedral, he does. And kind of finding out, too, what is it that we put our faith in and why do we put our faith in it? And can the weight of our faith actually be held by this thing and supported by this thing we're putting our faith in? The fact that Every one of these people in the story lives out their faith on a daily basis, whether they put their faith in a certain person, whether they Mm -hmm. put their faith in the fact that the sun's going to rise the next day, uh, you know, whether (laughs) they put their faith uh, in uh, science or belief in a God or any of these things, it's Mm -hmm. all faith in something. We live our lives by faith, no matter if you believe in a higher being or you just believe that we're an accident, that mm-hmm. you're putting your faith in that belief. And I thought that was a really amazing, interesting, and completely Deep Space Nine-y mm-hmm. talk. I mean, because you wouldn't really get that in any other Star Trek. Right. Um, one thing that it kind of said to me was uh, 
the idea of faith really spoke to me in the idea of faith in oneself too. Uh, Esri, for example, is, you know, kind of the perfect example of this. She doesn't really, she doesn't have a ton of confidence in herself as a host of the deck symbiont. And when they get split up, you know, she starts kind of thinking, well, maybe it's for the best, you know, I don't deserve the deck symbiont and that kind of thing. But by the end, you know, they realize that they need each other and she kind of starts to have that faith in herself. And same with Nog, right? Faith in the person he's become through his adversity and and that sort of thing. And you're very much correct. Faith is something that a lot of the Star Trek series really shied away from. Um, Deep Space Nine was kind of the only one to explore it, at least on a regular basis, uh, which makes it really unique in the whole Star Trek universe. <laughs> well, and it's really interesting too because there's a there's a discussion at, near the end of the book, and Bashir is thinking to himself, and he says, "Hence, we need." Faith, Bashir thought, mildly surprised to find himself so sanguine about that notion, at least on certain occasions. Aloud, he said, there's a time when my inquiries in the imponderables like this would have been limited solely to the cold equations of science. But ever since the cathedral brought me face to face with myself, as you were talking about, Mm I had to wonder whether those equations by themselves can ever be sufficient again. And this is what I think the crux of the entire book was. Vaughn says, maybe there's more to the universe than that. More than we can see or measure. And I think that was the thing that I that Deep Space Nine really does better than any Star Trek is get beyond the idea that we can ever truly completely know everything about the universe Mm-hmm. And it's when we realize that that we realize that we are people who live by faith, whatever it is that we put that faith in. And that is a huge, amazing, incredible statement for Star Trek to be making, I think. And in the end, when you really think about it, it's it's a reasonable and logically true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just like the way that they present that in this book. And I think it serves so well those things that we when we talk about the best star trek episodes they're the ones that make us think and really drive us and i think that that's where cathedral really hits all of those notes so perfectly mm. there are more things in heaven and earth horatio than are dreamt of in your philosophy is totally the quote that came to mind for me with this novel yeah, exactly. It it really does, I think, play out perfectly here. And um, it, it reminds me of, of a, a Doctor Who episode where he talks about uh, that, the, the 10th Doctor, about how he wants to travel and, you know, find things that he can't explain. You know, that's the goal is to find those things that don't make sense that he can't explain. And I think that's a really neat thing to see that, at least in this Star Trek novel, they are coming up against a thing that they cannot explain. And at the same time, that experience changes them forever. You know, the Bashir and Dax and Nog all come out of this completely the same and yet new somehow. There's a new confidence. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a new sense of purpose, but there's also a new sense of of calmness as well because they've 
come face to face with themselves and what they believe in and been challenged and been made to move forward. Mm-hmm. One of the things in this novel that that really challenged me um, with my kind of scientific and rational mind and, and wanting an explanation for everything was that they didn't really get into the why and the how behind the cathedral, which, you know, in retrospect is kind of the point. But at the same time, when I was reading it, I was like, but, but how does that work? How did, but I get, I totally get that that's how you're supposed to come away from it. So that to me was, was really challenging to kind of even confront in myself when I was reading this novel, which was kind of interesting. It was like their experience in microcosm a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that, that, that idea that there are always going to be things that you can never explain. Mm -hmm. So how do you, where is that going to make you place your faith? You know, like, so I can't, explain this and I'm probably never going to be able to so how does that move me in the rest of my life mm-hmm. and 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 you know when, when we talk about faith it, it again it's not some kind of I'm not talking about I just put blindly and I never think about it no faith is a very reasoned thing because then I put my faith in it you know like mm-hmm. whether I sit down on the chair like I still have faith that the chair is going to hold me up. You right. know, it's a it's it's a ridiculous idea, but it, I'm still having faith that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. In the same way, then my experience and my reason coming together show me where I'm going to put my faith, so that that informs the rest of the ways that I live my life. And I think that again is is beautifully just played out here especially when we talk about, you know, what Vaughn says, maybe there's just more than we can ever see or measure and we have to, you know, be okay with that. Mm-hmm. And that means that um, there is going to be a lot of life that's going to be lived out in faith. Uh, and it's it's a cool, amazing thing to kind of see that play out. And it really plays out too, Dan, with, with the way that They've been dealing with the Bajorans this whole time in the Deep Space Nine relaunch. And as I was reading this book, I was realizing that this is the Bajoran Reformation. Like, Kira is really kind of the John Wycliffe of of this Deep Space Nine universe for the Bajorans. And for those who don't know, John Wycliffe is the first person who put the Bible into English and printed it so that the common people could read it. Mm -hmm. And... So that a lot of the ways of what Kira did with these texts, she's taken it out of the hands of the church and disseminated that to the people to allow them to interpret the scriptures for themselves. Very much the way the Reformation works with the Catholic Church creating the Protestant movement mm-hmm. after the Bible has been given to, to people. And I just thought that was a really neat thing. You know, Deep Space Nine has always had that strong religious flavor and, and kind of hearkening back to our own history in that way. And it was nice to see how the relaunch really lives up to that. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of had a thought about uh, Kira well, and, and these Ohalu texts. Um, the Ohalu texts very much frame the prophets not as a religious or 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 deities, but explain it more in the way that the Starfleet characters would understand the prophets. And that was what uh, Yavir thought was so damning about it and so dangerous. 
And to me, it kind of reminded me of in real life when, as you know, the years went on and, and we learned more about the universe around us and the way the Catholic Church, for example, really pushed back against that, Galileo and, and all of that sort of thing, and the nature of the universe being not quite what they thought originally, but something different. And to me, that always just showed that the universe was more amazing than it was believed previously. A god who is a god of a world that's only 6,000 years old and nothing else and not the rest of the universe, to me, that's a very small god, for example. God that's god of this amazing, wonderful universe that we barely know anything about, that to me is amazing. And similarly, prophets as beings who live outside of time and space and actually have kind of destinies that they're creating in the real world, that to me is more interesting than um, something, you know, some kind of uh, poetry in, in a text that you have to try and figure out or something, if that makes any sense. No, it really does, because as you were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, the Catholic Church could never have seen how this revelation to others with with the Reformation would lead to some of the greatest scientists being, you know, inspired by being able to read Scripture for themselves. You know, Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, all mm-hmm. of these people who pioneered what we think of as science were very religious people as well. Mm-hmm. And so religion and and science didn't have a butting of a heads at that point they were actually coming together and and it was they were pursuing knowledge because they wanted to know about the universe that god had created Mm -hmm. you know and i think what you said is fantastic yeah believe god is is big and as bold and as powerful as the entire universe and and beyond anything i can ever understand because what we understand is just so finite. And I think, yeah, that's just a fantastic way of thinking. And, um, it's, it, again, I like the way that, um, Star Trek and Deep Space Nine here with the relaunch is really talking about all of those issues Mm -hmm. and playing it out in that kind of mythology way so that it it's easier to digest but it still makes you think about the real world all at the same time the way the best you know kind of fantasy and and mythology does exactly um, yeah (laughs) it's what yeah makes it's what makes again as chris and i talk about on deep space nine all the time (laughs) it's what makes deep space nine so special in the star trek canon Mm -hmm. because it really takes these things to heart so a lot of people might disagree with this but i feel like deep space nine brings us closer to the original series than any of the others did because that's what the original series really was was a series of allegories about our real life and that kind of thing and deep space nine i think brought that tradition back in a way that you know the other series didn't quite as much i would agree with you completely because i think it's they had a real understanding of what the essence of original trek was mm-hmm. that it kind of a, i think in some ways been lost just a little bit with the way that tng kind of preached at you right whereas deep space nine 
was more subtle. It allowed you to really kind of dive in and find it for yourself. But when you peeled back the layers of the onion, like an or uh, like an ogre from <laughs> Shrek, you know, <laughs> when you peeled back those layers, you know, you really find more and more and more as you dive deeper and deeper into the stories that they're creating. And mm. yeah, I, I really do agree with you. Um, you know, even TOS, it, it was a little bit more surfacey, and then Deep Space Nine took that and they really ran with that whole idea. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that really connects TOS and Deep Space Nine is it's about the character, stupid. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, TOS was all about the characters and all about building those characters. And, and especially throughout the films, they do that very well, at least with the main three. Whereas Deep Space Nine took that idea and, and again, they just go warp speed forgive the stupid star trek pun Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, and i think that's one of the things that this book series especially the mission gamma with twilight and cathedral do fantastically Mm -hmm. that's one thing about deep space nine that just kind of blows my mind is not only did they develop the characters of of the you know main core principal characters but they also found time to throw in about a dozen supporting characters and give them whole character arcs as well which really is mind-blowing when you come to when you think about it a character like nog or rom got way more character development than harry kim for example and i mean not to rag on voyager although that's that tends to be one of my favorite pastimes (laughs) you know how much character development did chakotay get versus let's even say Damar or Garrick. Well, yeah. And I mean, even the original series or TNG, I mean, how much do you really know about Sulu or Chekhov? Right. Other than the kind of the very basic things they're, they're, you know, Sulu's Asian. Um, he is, uh, somebody who likes fencing and botany and a good <laughs> scientist and he's a good navigator. Yeah. Uh, that's pilot. about it. <laughs> that's about it. You know, whereas again, like you said, gosh, I feel like I know more about Lita, the Dabo girl, <laughs> than I do about her. Or in, in TNG, you know, the same thing could be said for um, really the character development of Riker. Absolutely. Sometimes, yeah. or any of those. And, and so I think realizing that all of those series are fantastic, and I'm not putting in any of them down because I love them all. In fact, I oh, just definitely. bought uh, <laughs> the seventh season of, of TNG on Blu-ray, oh, I don't and have I, cannot, <laughs> I cannot wait to be able to go through it and watch the whole thing with my wife because she's never seen it, and so oh. it'll be great to be able to do it in high def. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah. So I wouldn't buy these things if I didn't love them. I mean, geez, if they put out Deep Space Nine and Voyager on, on Blu-ray, I'll get them too because it's Star Trek. I love it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I'm right there with you. Uh, I love all of the Star Trek series, really. It's just that, of course, Deep Space Nine kind of has a little bit of a special place in my heart. <laughs> Well, and and all of that, I was trying to get to this point before we just kind of went on a DS9 love fest, which is okay because <laughs> we're doing a Deep Space Nine book and the relaunch, and so it's really important to talk about. But the, this series, is, uh, as I was saying, with Twilight and and especially here, and obviously Mission Game of Twilight, not talking about <laughs> St- Stephanie Meyer, guys. It's not where I'm going. And, uh, of course, here with Cathedral, diving into the depth of these characters. You know, I mean, Kira... There's there's even a moment where Kira realizes how much she's changed. 
you know, that years ago, you know, she might have yelled at somebody or wanted to punch somebody or something like that. Um, they do the same thing with Roe. Roe talks about in her brain uh, as she's talking to one of these characters how she would have, you know, if it had been years ago, she probably would have need him in the groin. Um, <laughs> and or, or Quark and the way that he's developed into somebody who's really caring for Roe, which is still just creepy as heck to me. Um <laughs> Ah, of course, so romantic. <laughs> yeah, he he really is. Uh, it's surprising, but he is. And then, of course, uh, this whole book being about Bashir, Dax, and Nog coming face to face with certain parts of themselves. You know, Bashir learning to embrace the jewels within him. Mm-hmm. That that's okay. That that part of him is still there, and they they come face to face, and he's not warring anymore. They're actually they he's embraced all of him. You know. Dax, like you said, really coming and loving herself and and feeling like even though it was random happenstance, it seems like that she got the Dax symbiont, Esri deserves to have that symbiont now. Mm -hmm. And because she has it, she is going to add to it and and be worthy of the legacy. So, uh, you know, it's just great to see this... um, I think fine representation of the best of Deep Space Nine because we're really digging in and still learning about these characters. Mm-hmm. There's so many great, like you say, character moments in this novel. Uh, the one that really stood out to me and one that I think you can only really do justice in a novel like this. I can't really see how they would have done this on the television show was I, I just fell in love with the idea of Julian's personal mental Aya Sophia in which he contains, in which contains all of his knowledge and all of his uh, uh, wisdom and that sort of thing that he can access at any time. I just, I thought that was an amazing visual and something that, if it were possible, I would have loved to have seen on screen. It was a, yeah, it was a fantastic way to represent how his genetically engineered mind works and the fact that he can access information so fast and so to give us strangely enough in a book a visual representation mm-hmm. of how his mind works it was amazing i i really have to give it to the writers here because hands down that was one of the coolest ideas of trying to give us the inner workings of julian's genetically engineered mind and explain to us who aren't genetically engineered <laughs> kind of what it's like to have that kind of mind. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I absolutely loved, and again, this is kind of in the tradition of Deep Space Nine with all of its, you know, myriad secondary characters and stuff, was actually the character of Vedic Yavir in this novel. Yes, yes. Up until now, he's been kind of, I, you know, I wouldn't say a villain, but a foil, right? And you're you're kind of worried that he'll be like the next Kai Win kind of thing. But in this novel, it almost feels a little bit like Yavir's redemption, or at least kind of partial rehabilitation of his character. And you kind of realize that just like any of the other characters, he has many different facets and he isn't just his relationship to Kira or, you know, the things that he's done that we've seen so far. Uh, He's a complex character in his own right, which I really appreciated. And I love when they do things like that. Well, and and then it was really cool too because 
you know, when he travels to Cardassia and he, he meets the, the religious order there on Cardassia, which we hear about the religious persecution that they face because, mm-hmm. you know, they it's a very agnostic or AC it's a very agnostic or atheistic society there. And, and they really put down that uh, it's kind of a weakness. I thought that was really interesting. We deal with, um, and, and so getting a, a picture of all these different facets, I mean, Cardassia itself, Chris and I have talked about this in the orb is already one of the most developed societies we've seen in Star Trek and nuanced. Mm-hmm. Um, because they have all these different layers, you know, they've their government layer, they have their obsidian order, they have their people, they have the way their science works, you know, the women are kind of more of the sciences most of the time. Um, and, and then they started to add all these other layers with the Deep Space Nine relaunch. And I just felt like it was so fantastic to see that there were still things that we could discover about, say, the Cardassians, even after seven years of Deep Space Nine that we really hadn't seen before. And it was nice to see that and and really, like you said, helping build up these characters like Yavir and, and, and of course, Garrick showing up here and all those things. Great way to use something we've never seen before or things that we have seen before to give us character beats that allow us to see just how far our characters have come. Mm-hmm. And of course, I do have to say any any novel that has a Garrick scene in it just automatically gets bumped up a couple notches. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of that, I guess, um, how would you rate Cathedral? It's a good question. I, I really enjoyed this novel, uh, com- especially compared to the previous novel. I would have to give this one four ZL paintings out of five. Wow, that is a great, great rating. Uh, and even that little mention of Zial, um, you know, with, with the way that they've been using her and her legacy uh, throughout this series was is just fantastic. So it uh, makes me miss her every time they talk about her. I in, agree in the book. completely, so, yeah. <laughs> I, I think for myself, especially after that gray spirit and the, just kind of the disappointment that it was after twilight, which, you know, David R. George, the third just knocked that out of the freaking park, uh, like a Vulcan hitting a baseball. Um, <laughs> I, I really think that I would give this four out of four lost orbs. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I, I, I think this is one of the best deep space nine books that I've ever read. And I think it's honestly one of the best star Trek books, I've ever read because of all the things that we were able to talk about. And honestly, you know, if we had more time, <laughs> we would probably be able to sit here for another, you know, hour or so just kind of picking things out that we liked or talking about certain segments. And I think that's, we've been talking on the Babel conference, uh, a little bit eBooks. And I think one of the things that I've really loved about eBooks as uh, apart from having the, you know, Star Trek books in paperback, ebooks give you the opportunity to have the ease of of reading and because I don't try and hold it open but it's so much easier to mark and highlight and notate Mm -hmm. and in a book like this I have I have over a hundred highlights and I have probably at least 15 20 notations Mm -hmm. of just things I wanted to remember or thoughts that I had about the book so (laughs) I really really appreciate at this point being able to do that without trying to fit it in in the 
the side margin of a paperback. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Whereas uh, my paperback copy that I was reading from for this one, you know, the beginning third and the last third, I have post-it notes tucked all throughout it. But the middle third, I didn't have my post-it notes handy. So there's just no notes because I had no easy way of doing it, which is kind of sad. But like you said, ebooks, they're, they're great for that. I, my, uh, my e version of the missing, um, for example, I have something like 40 highlights and 50 notes or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just awesome. So however you could get this book, Dan and I highly recommend it to you guys. Uh, It has been a blast talking about Cathedral today, but it's not the only thing that we've been talking about on Trek FM the past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Because it's, it's actually legitimately trying to say something. Yes, it's very Star Trek. It may be the most Star Trek of all Star Trek. Yeah, it's definitely what I would point to as being, this is what science fiction is about. Earl Grey. Kovac will tell us to experience Bij sometimes, in which case we will draw the Bij card, Klingon word for pain. Is so, it birthday? It is. It is. It, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. To the journey! That's the one thing we could take from Homecoming is like paragraph one, Chakotay and Seven break up. That's for real. Yeah, they that shake happened. hands and go, hey, it's been fun. It's been nice. Thanks for the picnic. Eh, see then. ya. Commentary, Trek stars. Fair At this enough. point, like they could say, "Yeah, why not Star Wars crossover?" I would, I would essentially say, "Fine, both franchises are dead. Let's just sew them together and see what happens." Melodic treks. One of the most well thought out alien races that you only see in one episode. Yeah, and the music is is it's menacing without being over menacing. If that makes yeah. sense. Axonar, the official podcast. I think Justin Lin is a, is a fascinating choice to direct because the Fast and the Furious movies, even though, yeah, they're action-adventure, road race movies, are really about a family. The 602 Club. That's really cool, though. I mean, I, I think that is uh, a fantastic way to get to see just about any movie is, is kind of being able to watch it through a kid's eyes. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, hit that subscribe button. It helps us out greatly and it makes it easier for listeners to find the show as they're searching in iTunes, as do star ratings and reviews. So if you have time, go to iTunes, give us a star rating and a review. We really do appreciate it. It helps us greatly. And we'll give you a shout out on the show, of course. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way that you can help keep all of our shows coming to each week is become a patron of the network on Patreon. And if you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find all our current goals and milestone contribution levels along with the great perks that we have for you. They include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on the content development team, and more. And guys, we definitely can't do this without you. Uh, and that is the truth. So we really do appreciate any support that you can give us and we hope that you'll join the team again you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek fm 
If you want to contact us, you can do that at trek.fm slash contact. You can send us a voicemail. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We are on Twitter at trek.fm, on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And if you want to join our special listeners-only discussion group, type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or just go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. We'd like to thank Will Wynn, who is on Twitter at Will underscore Wynn, and of course the Babel Conference. He's our associate producer here, as well as on the Orb and Oral Gray. He's also Trek FM's content coordinator. If you have any ideas for a future show, or just content ideas, just email him at will.win at trek.fm, or send him a tweet. We'd also like to thank Lisa Stevens for her support of the network and being an associate producer on Literary Treks. You can find her on Twitter, at Flip18. And we'd also like to thank our new associate producer here on Literary Treks, Kenneth Tripp, for his support of the network and being an associate producer on our show here on Literary Treks as well. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps bring Literary Treks and all of our shows to each week. And that sponsor, of course, as we said earlier, is Audible.com. It's a great way to find all of those books that you've always wanted to read and never had time for. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for their support of Literary Treks and the network. So, Dan, when you're not trying to find a way to hit on row, uh, where can we find you? <laughs> well, Matthew, you can find my website where I publish uh, reviews of Star Trek novels, both new and old. And you can find that at www.treklit.com. I'm on facebook.com slash treklitreviews and on Twitter at treklitreviews. And additionally, my reviews of new novels get posted on trekcore.com. And Matthew, when you're not on Cardassia trying to secure the release of those lost orbs, where can we find you? Whew, man, I'd really like to find those new orbs. Uh, Dan, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can find me on the 602 Club talking about all things geeky here on the network as well. And you can also find me doing the orb with Christopher Jones, as I've mentioned a few times in this podcast, where we talk about Deep Space Nine specifically. And you can also find me on my own personal blog where I just do reviews of movies and books and things that are important to me at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.